0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the We Scandal continues as the NDP ethics critic releases documents that say the youth minister was involved in the decision. U.S. President Donald Trump visits Kenosha, Wisconsin. Good idea or bad? And Australia is taking on Facebook they want to be paid for the content Australian media provides Facebook. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Thanks to those of you who have sent notes about these intros, I'm hitting up my dad for heavy remuneration. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here, Scott!
0: Thompson. Oh, wait a second here. Everybody wants more money. That's not all it. It is twelve eleven. It is nine hundred. Chml. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, uh, keeping us between the rails uh, on the Scott Thompson Home Show, week number twenty five. What day is it? Do we know? Tuesday? Monday? I know it's not Friday. Maybe August that's 33rd? How... <laughs> yeah, Really? Yeah, it's August thirty third. Let's go with that. Uh, the kids don't want September anyway. Uh, come on. Um, you know what? That, when you think about it, that's a good idea. We should just um, you know we should just keep the months going. It's you know September one hundred and twenty three. All right. Feel free to jump into the fun. As always, we'd love to have you. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we want to know what your feedback is. There's lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900chml.com. And don't forget about Facebook and Twitter. You will find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there today on the Governor General uh you know I, I don't think she's ever wanted the job to be honest um remember right back to the very beginning of her taking the position it seemed she didn't want to do all of the events she was ducking come uh, you know a few of the events didn't like uh the uh the exposure that she was getting and, and how much time she had to spend in front of the public uh and would even duck i remember hearing stories of her ducking rcmp security detail which You know, is kind of tough to do. So uh, now we have allegations of uh, harassment within the governor's general, uh, governor general's office, and a firm has been hired to conduct a review of uh... the behavior inside the governor general's office and uh, again i come back to my earlier point uh... why are we trying to fit a square peg into a round hole here it seems that this governor general has never really wanted the position why do we keep uh... i guess both her and canadians in their misery let's bring in michael tobe troy media syndicated columnist contributor to the washington times former speechwriter for Stephen harper he is with us now michael thanks for the time what are your thoughts on what is happening in the governor general's office
2: yeah, no, my pleasure, Scott. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that seem to be going on. We've we've heard the prime minister, and I don't know if he mentioned this right off the top, uh, come out and state that he still believes that Governor General Julie Payette is doing an excellent job, in his words, and he has no plans to do anything which he believes would be similar to a constitutional crisis that he removed her. So you have that on the one end, but we also know that based on the fact that Justin Trudeau is more than willing to shuffle around his cabinet, as we saw with whatever happened between him and Bill Morneau, which led to Morneau not only stepping down as finance minister but leaving his political seat, you you can tell that there's a lot of things that are swirling about. The problem also is that uh, Julie Payette, as you did discuss, because I caught part of that, there's just a lot of things, there's a lot of baggage that now she has to deal with, from the terrible expenditures, including this enormously expensive staircase, which was sketched out but had never built. You have issues of former employees and others directly saying that she was harmful or abusive to them, at least by their reports and their accounts. And you now have this independent commission now looking into this to see, one, if any of the allegations are valid, and B, if they are, I think it would change everything. I think it would change the government's tune, the prime minister's tune, And probably all of our tunes, if if a lot of these things which are right now just allegations turn out to be valid.
0: It seems that the Prime Minister wants her there more than she wants to be there. Obviously, she's a very high-profile person, very successful, uh, but, but it also appears like she never really wanted the job. Is that accurate?
2: You know, that's a very good analysis, and a lot of people are starting to wonder about that. Look, we don't know what's in a person's head or in their heart, so... We can't answer definitively one way or the other, but certainly based on the language that we've heard and the fact that she seems to, at least according to news reports, values her privacy, has not lived in Rideau Hall all this time, which is kind of astonishing when you believe that's really part of the gig is to live there, not just yeah. work there, walk the ground, touch the grass or whatever. It's actually to live in the hall itself. And she hasn't been there at all during the time that she's been governor general which is more than two and a half years and the fact that we just hear stories about how she sort of negatively looks at the job and meeting certain people and some of the duties and just a whole lot of whining and complaining which if all valid sort of puts your point into perspective the question is if she really doesn't like this job, she doesn't enjoy it, she doesn't, you know, all the various pumps and circumstances, vigor, whatever you want to say that's associated with it, if she really doesn't like it, one, why did she take it in the first place? And B, why is she still there? But those two questions are things that she has to answer, not you or I.
1: Is
0: she fulfilling all of her responsibilities? I mean, has she been a good governor general in that respect?
2: Well, I don't think you're really a good governor general if you're not willing to fulfill all your duties, are you? I mean, I I would certainly think that the best person for the role, the best person for the job, is someone who is willing to perform most or all of the duties associated with it. It doesn't mean that the governor general doesn't have a mind of his or her own and he or she can't object to something, I mean, that's certainly within the realm of possibility, and is acceptable, you know, by and large, in a democracy like we live in in Canada. But at the same time, if this is the role you're supposed to fulfill, then yes, there are certain duties and responsibilities that are understood for this role, and you should do them without hesitation, unless you have, unless there's some real, you know, offbeat or mitigating reason why you wouldn't do any of this. I just don't get it. So... So I think that no matter what the prime minister is saying, whether he believes she is or isn't doing an excellent job, and somehow behind the scenes, I would strongly doubt it based on all the problems that have occurred. Based on the fact that Julia Bayet just doesn't seem to be happy with the role, or at least the reports seem to suggest this, no, I don't think she's done a very good job. I think she's done a, a mediocre or a less than mediocre job. And again, I think there's really an argument to be made or a suggestion to be made that if there are all these things about her, that she mistreated people, abused former employees, etc., this would actually open the door, not necessarily to a constitutional crisis, but to at least a revisitation of constitutional rights and obligations and maybe considering having her either leave the job voluntarily, which would be easier, Or, unfortunately, getting the Queen involved to remove her, since Queen Elizabeth II is actually the only person who can do so. Obviously, though, guided by the Prime Minister.
0: Uh, That was my next question. If needed, how do you go about replacing your Governor-General? It's
2: very, very difficult. Any constitutional expert you bring on from Philip Legasse on will say to you that it is not easy to do. Can it be done? Certainly. It can be done with... There is... You know, again, it all goes back directly... To the, the Queen, or whoever the monarch is at that point in time, because that's what the Governor General of Canada is there for. The Governor General is basically playing the role of the British monarchy in this country. So the only person who can hire the Governor General, technically, is the Queen in this case, and the only person who can fire the Governor General is also the Queen. Naturally, the Queen listens to the Prime Minister of the day and will take his advice, or if it ever turns out to be, again, a replacement for Kim Campbell, her advice, in terms of how things should be handled if there are problems with a governor general. There, This issue has really not come up. There's really been no precedent for this, mainly because while some governor generals have been better than others, of course, uh, generally speaking, most of them have fulfilled their duties properly. We can argue about certain things and ways that they handle taxpayer dollars like Adrian Clarkson, for example, but by and large, most of them have you know, fulfilled the obligations that the prime minister of the day who brought them in, or if that prime minister loses an election, the prime minister who replaces him has basically been content with overall. So this is an unusual example. It would be a very rare moment in Canadian history, and I doubt we would relive it anytime soon. But with all the evidence surmounting against her, you almost wonder if we're heading in that direction. I guess time will tell.
0: Uh, obviously, the pr- uh, prime minister has shown confidence in her. Uh, and, and as you said, it was his choice to the queen for, for governor general. Um, does this become or at what point does this become an embarrassment for the prime minister? I mean, obviously, if she was excellent, she wouldn't be investigate, being investigated by a third party uh, for allegations of abuse. So at what point does this look bad on the PM?
2: I think it's looked bad in the PM for quite a while, don't you? I mean, you have to look at it pretty straightly. I mean, she has basically taken up an enormous amount of the news cycle. Now, yes, I know that some people behind the scenes are claiming that the liberal government and others are basically running the proverbial bus over her over and over again. And they're trying to do it to sort of get away from the WE charity scandal. And other that was my next
0: question. Is this all about a deviation from WE?
2: It could be. I mean, obviously, politics is a lot of things. Strategy is one of them. So from a strategic component, it would actually make sense to deviate attention or push the needle or the narrative in a different direction. Ergo, if they really feel that Julie Payette, the governor general, has not been handling her duties properly, they could quietly do it that way. It wouldn't be unique in any country's history, including ours. But without any, you know, we just don't know at this stage. It's, It's hard to say. I'm sure that there's obviously a lot of people in the Liberal caucus who are frustrated. I'm sure there are Liberal cabinet ministers who are frustrated. I wouldn't be shocked if people like Chrystia Freeland were frustrated because she's been asked questions about the Governor-General and has tried to slide away from them. And other than, well, or with the exception of what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just recently said about the Governor-General, you almost wonder, because it's been quite a while since he said anything, even though he's saying how great and wonderful everything is, behind the scenes, as I said earlier, maybe that's not the way he feels.
0: Plus, you also have to think if, considering this has been going on since, really, she took the position, if you don't ask her to step down now with this third-party investigation, when do you? I guess when the results are in?
2: I think so, and that's probably what they'll do. I I get your point, and I think there's there's some validity to it. Um, But basically, I think the Liberal government would rather, in this case, as a guess allow the process to go forward. So allow the independent, the independent party or third party to do his or her or their proper investigation, reach a conclusion, write a report, issue it directly to the prime minister in his caucus or in the cabinet, and from there they can make a decision. But my guess is they won't do it early. They'll probably just allow the investigation to run.
0: Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
2: My pleasure. You too.
0: Uh, NDP Ethics Commissioner uh, Charlie Angus, uh, on the hunt, he was uh, cited, uh, citing recently released documents as proof that the youth minister played a crucial role in In the Liberal government's decision to have the WE Charity uh, administer a multi-million dollar student volunteer program, uh, initially uh, the government had said that it was the civil service that had made these recommendations and that they were merely just going along uh, with what their suggestion was. Obviously, uh, Charlie Angus pointed out uh, some interesting points yesterday. Let's bring in Genevieve Tellier, Professor, School of uh, Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us. Genevieve, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: Thank you very much, Scott.
0: Is this still resonating with Canadians, uh, or have the Liberals successfully turned the channel here, whether it's with the pandemic, whether it's prorogation? Is this still resonating?
1: That's a good question. I think for the moment, uh, the Liberals are kind of pleased with what's going on because with prorogation, we don't have any debates at, in the House. Uh, committees don't work. And so people are starting to come back from vacation. What's on our minds is more about uh, the uh, school starting and uh, the dealing with uh, all the sanitary measures that are in place. And so we're not really thinking about politics now, I think that is only for the short run in the, in the sense that uh, the House will resume in a few weeks and so we'll have a new speech of the throne and then the opposition party will be again able to come back on the government and attack the government about this uh, We Charity scandal because I think that for the opposition party they still want to, work, to talk about that and, and what they have now, it's time to look a bit more into depth about what has been going on and this is precisely what Charlie Angus and the NDP he has been doing for the last weeks meaning going through the thousands of pages that were released and trying to get and find some 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 contradiction and they did it and they did find that. So uh, they will try to revive that. Uh, but about the Canadians again I think with that can If I could call it a scandal, but with that story, like a previous story, like the SNC-Lavalin case, I think the mind of people is already made and we know we Mm. have our mind made. And so will that change it? I'm not sure with what was presented by the NDP uh, yesterday.
0: That's a very valid point, Genevieve, and we did see this in the SNC-Lavalin case as it progressed. Uh, even as decisions were made, uh, people had already decided which way they were going to think on this. That's a that's a valid point. Do you think the Liberals are counting on an election come September 23rd? Because uh, obviously now we're hearing from, from most parties that nobody wants an election and they want these committees to continue uh, after the throne speech on September 23rd. Uh, are, are the Liberals playing a big card here?
1: I think so. I think they are counting on an election. They won't be the ones launching the election they want they're gonna show publicly that they are reaching for the support of other party and if they have, and if they have the support, that will also be good for them because probably the other party will have to tone down its voice and 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 put the witchery file uh, on the side uh but yes, if there is an election and they are not the one to blame for that election uh I think they are prepared or in the mids of being prepared in the sense that they are preparing their speech of the throne. Um, I guess it will unveil a, a new program, some ambitious initiatives. We're talking about something about the environment that would possibly could be something that Canadians want to hear about that we have not heard about for many months. Um And so, yes, that could be at their advantage to to go into an election. Um, now that being said, it's always risky, so there's no guarantee that they will win uh there's a new leader now with the conservatives, something new could bring could be out there um and we'll see how the other party also are performing so it's always risky to go into an election uh but maybe that would be what they want also I'm talking about the liberal; uh it's a it would be a way to push the reset button and try to push the we uh, charity file uh to the back burner.
0: You were talking about the throne speech on on how it's going to be heavy in the green initiatives. Will the liberals prepare a throne speech that they know will not get accepted, trying to trigger the trigger this election
1: maybe uh yes, that would be the way to launch an election if that's really what they want that they will offer something that would be uh unadmissible for any party, and so no one wants to support them. Um, now, there are the strategy also maybe to try to reach to the n d p and so push a bit more to the left. And then corner, if I could speak like that, corner the NDP to have them do something that maybe they don't want to do and accept a program that would be led by the Liberal. But yes, that could be a strategy. So that's why the next, the, the, the throne of the speech will be very interesting because that will be the time where we will know exactly what are the intentions of, of the Liberal. But yes, that could be a possibility to try to put too much thing that other party cannot accept.
0: And really, when you think about it, the liberal government is playing their their big card, uh, not during an election, but trying to trigger one or before an election. So once they do release this document, how do they how do they campaign during an election? Because they pretty much have told their story, no?
1: Yes, but that's the fact for, I think, any incumbent in the sense that uh, when you are already in power, uh, you don't, it's really difficult to present something new because, uh, your new idea, uh, you have already presented them and so you have to work on that and build on that. And that's always difficult for, for a governing party to show, uh, change, to show a new face, to show a new ideas. So I think that's the best alternative that they have is to work on the throne of the speech to maybe remind a few initiatives that were lost because of the pandemic, because of other files. Uh, There was also uh, the railway story, the blockade that we have also in the the winter. Mm. And so maybe put back on the agenda a few things like the environment, uh, which was kind of really not uh, tackled during the last election and i think that was a deception for many canadians and so I, when i was talking about pushing on the reset reset button that may be something to do it's to put back the environment fr- uh, file on the front and and discuss have a, a meaningful discussion a- a about that so they may use the tones of the speech to do exactly that
0: uh, NDP ethics critic uh, Charlie Angus uh, talked about yesterday, and, and uh, obviously the government's trying to distance, distance, distance itself from the We Charity, saying that it was the the public service that recommended this, not uh, the government. And and Angus released, or, or sorry, uh, uh, made reference to documents that prove that the youth minister did play a crucial role in the government's decision uh, to have the We Charity uh, administer this, this student volunteer program. Uh, how crucial is that how much is that a game-changer at all
1: not for the moment because we don't have any solid proof what we have probably is that the minister did not tell the full story It may have misled the house uh by saying that she did not discuss this file and in fact it seems and i underline seems it seems that she did mention the file to to the to, to, to we charity um so uh it's all, it's again uh, one word with another word and so we don't have the full picture but again i think that For most of the Canadians, our mind is already done on the file. Uh, The only new thing is that that the focus is now on a new minister. So until now, we were focusing on Bill Morneau and uh, the the prime minister also. Now the pressure will be on Minister schager We'll see what will happen with that. And so my sense is that the opposition party will go at toward that minister specifically and try to have her resign or remove or that kind of thing. I'm not sure they will succeed, but they need a new story to keep that lies uh, in in the news. And so that's the new piece we had yesterday. Will that be enough for many weeks? I'm not sure. It will depend uh, if we find other things. And uh, if nothing else comes out, I'm not sure that it will harm more the government as it is until now.
0: Uh, just to change it up a bit here, Genevieve, your thoughts uh, before we let you go on uh, the new conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, and what his biggest challenge is as we move towards this throne speech.
1: Um, this um, This idea of the conservative trying to reunite itself under one big program, one big vision that will appeal for a good number of Canadians that would be willing to vote for them. So it's always a question of uh, who do you target? Do you target your strong base uh, that includes social conservatives and that may displease other Canadians? Or do you broaden a bit more your platform, your initiative, and provide a vision, a global vision to Canadians uh, for where the country is going for the coming years? And so it's not just the next election, but the next next. Decades, I would say, and and try to reconfort Canadians that are concerned with the pandemic, with the environment, with social programs. And so what's the new conservative vision now? Um, I think that the years of Stephen Harper are behind us. Um, I'm not sure that the strategy to revive the initiatives that were proposed by Stephen Harper would be the best strategy to do. Um, And so that would be a challenge to uh, Erin O'Toole. So it was promising, his discourse, when he accepted the nomination the the first night when he won the leadership. um, He talked about diversity and bringing everybody back into the conservative tent. Uh, But that being said, how do you do it? And so that's the big challenge, Mm. in my view, for Erin O'Toole.
0: Genevieve Tellier has been with us, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, talking everything uh, Canadian politics. Genevieve, as always, thanks for the time, much appreciated
1: thank you very much Scott
0: despite objections from state and local leaders US President Donald Trump visited Kenosha, Wisconsin yesterday of course uh, the hometown of Jacob Blake uh, and the man that was shot seven times in the back survived but is paralyzed from the waist down Uh, was this a smart move for his bid for re-election and uh, we're now hearing that uh, Joe Biden will be making uh, the trip on Thursday I do believe let's bring in Reggie Giacchini Washington producer and correspondent with Global News he's with now reggie thanks for the time hope you're well good afternoon how is all of this uh being uh uh, uh, how is this all being accepted in the united states does it depend on what team you are does there is there any show uh, sign of unity here or is this just creating more divisiveness
3: no, Scott, this really is just showing the further and growing divide between Democrats and Republicans. And you're right off the top there that the president uh, was pushed uh, or at least the visit from the president was pushed back on by state and local leaders saying that it could work to potentially inflame uh, tensions that have really we- reached a boiling point. Uh, following the shooting of Jacob Blake, nonetheless, the president did show up. It's worth noting he did not meet with the family of Blake, saying uh, that there were reasons, including uh, the family wanting lawyers involved in that conversation. So he instead met with law enforcement uh, and in meeting with law enforcement. Uh, he really told this line that his administration is actively working to curtail these protests in these cities. But again, it's worth pointing out here that it was state leaders who enacted uh, the National Guard to come in and help quell the protests, not the Trump administration.
0: So what was the result of him being there? Uh, Did it stir up uh, protests? What was the reaction uh, the day later?
3: It didn't stir up any protests. You know, some people did take to the streets to either greet or kind of jeer the president when he arrived. But at the end of the day... Uh, the trip was kind of in and out in a couple of hours. It did spark some controversy, though. The president met with business owners uh, whose whose properties have been damaged following the days of protests. But we've now found out that one of the business owners didn't want to actually participate uh, in the meet and greet because he's not a Trump supporter. So what happened was they found a former business owner who used to operate that company and they instead came to meet the president. So it was simply uh, an opportunity for the president to be at a photo op uh, in a city where he simply wasn't welcomed. Uh,
0: obviously, as you mentioned, the president focused on law enforcement in the businesses rather than the protests and, and the social unrest. Uh, how much reference did he make to the cause of all of this?
3: Uh, Very little. And this has been uh, what the president has been criticized now for uh, for months now, really since the death of George Floyd, where the president is not talking about any kind of systemic problem when it comes to uh, police actions, uh, especially with people of color. He's not talking about a high death rate when it comes to black men at the hands of police. Instead, he's talking about, uh, you know, radical far left protesters and rioters and, quote, anarchists. Uh, And talking about the fact that this will be something that will continue underneath the Democratic presidency uh, if Joe Biden wins. Failing to talk about the fact that this is a crisis that is happening on his watch. uh, And he has been criticized for doing very little to try and deal with this.
0: What do we know about uh, uh, the attempt of a visitation with the Blake family? Uh, Did they not want it? Did he try? Where did that go? Why did he not meet with his family?
3: Well, the president says he spoke with the mother, but said that uh, because the family wanted lawyers involved in the conversation, he made kind of an off the cuff remark that he has enough lawyers in his life. Uh, and that's why he didn't hold that conversation with them. He instead uh, had a discussion with the family pastor. It's unclear whether or not that's a true story and whether uh, lawyers was the real reason uh, that the president didn't meet with the family. But it's also worth noting here the family didn't want to re- didn't, uh, didn't uh, ask for a, a presidential visit. Uh, but we do know that Joe Biden has reached out to the family. So uh, this is, again, kind of showing that divide that does exist, not only between Republicans and Democrats, but along the U.S. population as a whole.
0: So is Biden going there on Thursday, and will he meet with the family?
3: Yes, he is expected to meet with the family on his trip there on Thursday. But, you know, it's worth remembering here, Wisconsin is an incredibly important state, both for Democrats and Republicans, uh, because it could be a make-or-break decision on who becomes the president. Joe Biden's visit to Wisconsin tomorrow will be the first time that a Democratic candidate has arrived in the state since 2012. Uh, we remember Hillary Clinton didn't show up in any of these states in 2016, uh, and Trump won these states handily. Uh, the president is kind of banking on trying to make some political points or earn some points by that trip, whereas Joe Biden is trying to use an empathetic approach uh, to say that he is on the side of the victims. He's on the side of those looking for uh, some kind of institutional change, while at the same time also trying to pick up some of those same political points.
0: What about protests in Kenosha? Is it, Are they showing signs of easing up? Up at all
3: it, it, there's been a relative sense of calm over the last several days the National Guard was called in by the governor earlier Uh, or at least late last week. And that really did quell most of the violence that we've seen Uh, from reports. It has been uh, mostly quiet now through the evenings. Uh, There is more kind of conversation than chaos that is happening uh, across the city. But this is something where the Trump administration is facing that criticism for kind of egging on uh, the violence uh, and not talking about the underlying uh, problems. Uh, You know, yesterday when the president was uh, attempting to talk about the issues in Kenosha, he continuously punted back to the situation in Portland, obviously something that's going out of control right now but the president's rhetoric oftentimes inflames that
0: reggie jacchini's been with us washington producer and correspondent with global news make sure you're watching global news tonight at 5 30 and 6 for more on all of this reggie as always thanks for the time much appreciated thank you you're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It doesn't matter what the issue of the day is. Somehow social media seems to work its way into it, whether it is a COVID-19 pandemic, whether it is fake news and, and whatever during an election campaign, or even uh, even news media. Uh, and this is an interesting situation. We're going to bring in Karmie Levy, tech analyst. Uh, but basically what's happening here, I believe, is that uh, Australia wants Facebook to compensate its news organizations when it takes content and puts it up on Facebook. To talk more with uh, about all of this, Carmi Levy is with us, tech analyst. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
4: Oh, great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Facebook versus Australia. What, uh, have I hit the nail on the head here? What is happening?
4: Pretty much. Uh, you know, what's happening here is uh, it's 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 um it's kind of like um canary in a coal mine because what happens in australia is going to color and flavor uh, what happens on the you know should facebook and google pay for access to content uh front around the world and so everyone's watching this particular case very closely and so australia last year uh conducted an inquiry just to kind of understand the media market you know you know what's happening there is the same thing as what's happening here and everywhere else uh, layoffs there are advertising challenges um you know they're shrinking their coverage there's less news coverage because it's expensive and the advertising dollars that used to go to conventional media are now flowing to social media and so they had an inquiry and they found out that basically that companies like facebook and google were getting a free ride they weren't paying into the the gathering process of all of that news content but they were certainly benefiting from it, and then they were. They're just basically cutting
0: and pasting other people's product, other people's exactly. content.
4: Exactly. So they don't contribute to it, but they certainly benefit from it because everyone goes to Facebook first, and then Facebook sells ads against that and gives up none of that to the media companies that that benefit them in the first place. And so the government said, okay, you know, we need to negotiate a better deal with the the, the tech giants uh and failing that we will draft legislation that forces them to pay uh, and that's when facebook got all uppity and said well you know if you're going to go there we're going to cut you off completely and we're not going to allow our you know we're not going we're not going to pick up that content and uh and you know basically when you go to facebook you're not going to get anything and so it's this tit for tat back and forth battle uh, everybody's threatening everyone else and the outcome is going to determine Uh, Not just what happens in Australia, but really, uh, you know, what kind of rules are in place around the world and just how far companies like Facebook can go uh, to get their way.
0: Uh, This is, won't this change everything? Because let's be honest, at the end of the day, this phenomenon that has taken over called social media all they really are is a new form of distribution. They're a new method of distribution. They do not produce any content whatsoever. It's the users that do that. So mm-hmm. could this model be near the end of its shelf life? Uh, and again, won't this change everything? It will. Uh, and I think you know, we're because if they have to, to real- pay for it, because if they have to pay for it, Carmi, you're going to see what is there go way
4: down. Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, but I think this reckoning has been building for quite some time. I mean, if you think back to the early web, uh, there was this great excitement in the 90s that, you know, you can get anything you want to read any newspaper around the world without recognizing that, you know, it costs somebody something to create that. Uh, And so we got used to the idea of free, that information needed to be free without appreciating the back end of it. Uh, and so, you know, that of course, that was in place when social media came along in the mid aughts and then Facebook, of course, built and, you know, now we consume most of our content through social media, not just the straight up web. And so where we're at now is that as a society, we don't appreciate what goes into creating primary content. In other words, going out, doing the reporting, doing the interviews, putting it together, having producers who build it uh, and edit the videos. Uh, and and do all that stuff so that you can then see it. And so we we assume that social media replaces conventional media, that, oh, you know, I don't need to worry about newspapers, TV stations, and radio stations anymore because I get everything on Facebook. Well, Facebook is just a medium. It's a channel. It has to be filled with good stuff. And if conventional media doesn't provide that, nobody will. And I think it's starting to dawn on us now that, that there is a price of free, and we haven't been paying it for a very long time.
0: And news organizations have been paying for that content, paying for that progress. We've certainly seen, especially in the news lately, how obviously local media is suffering and local coverage is suffering as a result of this. Is this the answer to that
4: problem? Uh, It certainly needs to be part of the answer, whether it's the only thing that we can do to level the playing field. I think that's uh, probably for ongoing discussion, I think more needs to be done, and I think we need to have a national dialogue or a global dialogue about what is and is not fair. Uh, but what is true is that you know when you look at you know riots in the U.S. or uh, you know Canadian government response to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, It's not Facebook that's sending reporters to the press conferences and Facebook that's uh, standing on the sidelines in the middle of the riots, cameras rolling uh, and interviews going. And they're not writing the content and editing it. It's the news organizations that are doing it. And then Facebook simply aggregates it and shares it. So Facebook's been getting a free ride, as has Google as have all of the social media and web players for a very long time. We're talking about Facebook now because obviously they're the biggest of the big. Uh, but Google certainly has a role to play here, as does as do all tech companies that benefit from this. The the sort of the coup de grace, or like the the, the especially unfair part of this is, is that advertising dollars that used to go to conventional media now Google and and uh, and Facebook they're benefiting from it. Most of the advertising dollars are flowing to them. Uh, And so, you know, on the one hand, conventional media has to produce it, pay for it. Uh, Google and Facebook get it for free, and then they steal their advertising lunch money, which is completely unfair at some point. It has to change because that model where we're at now, absolutely unsustainable. And if left unchecked, we're not going to have any news coverage at all. So is the free
0: ride for this over? I mean, you know, I can think of, for example, Netflix, which at one time, was in the business of distributing DVDs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, all they are, same thing with social media. It's just the middleman. It's the person distributing it from point A to point B. So is the new model for these social media companies that they have to now get into the business of producing content like Netflix is?
4: They should. Uh, and, you know, that's what Netflix did. Netflix pivoted, recognized that it needed to find some way to add value to the process. and they were More than just it. distribution exactly because at some point if if that's all you are if all you are is a distributor or what we like to call an aggregator you sort of you take other people's stuff and you repackage it and then you send it out eventually someone is going to eat your lunch eventually you're going to get out competed yeah. and that's not really a long-term business model so at some point you've got to start telling your own stories and that's what Netflix has done and it, that Netflix model now has been adopted by pretty much everyone look at all of the streaming services and the mm-hmm. reason that we sign up for them is because they have original cool content that we all want to watch and whoever has the best one well they're going to get my sus- subscription uh, and so i think the same logic has to play out with social media it's time for social media to grow up uh, facebook is no longer the domain of of uh, you know arguing online and sharing stuff and watching Silly end user produced videos, the level of quality has to go up. Google figured it out a few years ago when it moved YouTube uh, up market uh, and incentivized content creators to create better high quality content and actually put its money where its mouth was. It's and others to do exactly the same.
0: All right, can't let you go without asking you about predictive policing. Again, this in, in, in involved in collecting data and such and then using it to predict. What can you tell us about this? What does it mean?
4: Well, what it means is that you know we can use data to predict whether, for example, someone or a certain group of someone will recommit crimes in future, or we can look at at past data and then say, this neighborhood has a particular problem, that other neighborhood does not. So you can focus limited law enforcement resources where they will have the, the most benefit. I don't think anybody argues against that. The problem here is that we're using artificial intelligence and machine learning in ways that are quite frankly terrifying. And, quite, and and so there are no controls, no rules, no laws governing what is acceptable and is not. Uh, and it's, the use of it is just going ahead. And even worse, it's based on data that's been around for a very long time. In other words, data that or, or events uh, that happened during a time that was perhaps less tolerant. So, you know, we're talking about Black Lives Matter. We're talking about, uh, you know, leveling the playing field when it comes to race relations. Well, what if... Your predictive analytics that you're using to manage law enforcement into the future is based on data from the 60s, 70s and 80s yeah. when we weren't quite as diverse as we are now. Kind of frightening. And we, you know, before we start flipping the switch on all this technology, a report from the University of Toronto Citizen Lab says, hey, let's step back and do this right. Otherwise, it could be more trouble than it's worth.
0: How close are we to all of this, Uh, whether it's the uh, uh, predictive policing, uh, some are saying that it is going on now on a trial basis, or even the switches that we're seeing in Facebook? Is this like turning the Titanic? Uh,
4: To a certain extent, yeah, it's already happening, Scott, and that's kind of the scary thing is that it's happening, but we don't exactly know how or or under what circumstances because we're not being given that information. There's no transparency. There's no accountability. Uh, You know, we can't see behind that wall. Uh, and so we know something's going on, but we don't really have any details. And so at some point, it's going to blow up in our face. You know, and, and that's when, you know, I, I think then we sort I don't want to say I told you so. I, I want to say, hey, we, we need to have that conversation now so that we don't get to a point where we get into trouble using this data. Um, and that puts either individuals or groups within society at an unfair disadvantage. It's where we're going. It's minority Report. Um, And I remember when I first saw Minority Report, it was terrifying to think that that much power, unchecked power, could be placed in the hands of law enforcement. I certainly want them to have great tools, not at the expense of of abusing individual rights. And that's where this will go if we don't have kind of checks and balances in place to prevent that kind of abuse.
0: Carmi Levy has been with us, tech analyst. Carmi, as always, fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well.
4: Great being here, Scott. You too.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Parents and teachers and students concerned about heading back to class come this uh, September. I guess we're into September now, aren't we? Yes, September 2nd. Uh, You know, if you don't know what day it is, how the heck are you going to know what month it is, right? Uh, and, and obviously, there's lots of concerns and, and questions, uh, lots of which just simply cannot be answered uh, at this time. But what about liability? What happens if uh, if people get sick, kids get sick once they are in school, teachers get sick once they are all, all in school? Uh, and, and particularly, uh, there's some that have decided to keep the kids home. And then created these pandemic pods, which you know basically you'll get uh, a few kids from the neighborhood together that are within your bubble, and you'll get a tutor, and you know maybe the kids will spend an hour or two in someone's house doing all of this. What is the liability? Where is the liability? Let's bring in Savan Tumarkin, co-founder and partner at Sam Furo Tumarkin LLP, and heads of the firm's long-term disability and personal injury law practice group, and is with us now. Savan, uh, w- well, let's start with the teachers' unions. And uh, the court case, they're taking the uh, provincial government to court uh, for their back-to-school plan over issues of workplace safety. Um, your thoughts on this case? Uh, will it be successful? Where does it leave the government?
5: Well, that's an interesting question, Scott. I, I think that you know it, it leaves the government in, a, in obviously a difficult situation from a legal liability standpoint. The government's uh, uh, decision here is, is policy-based. And the government is immune from liability for policy decisions for obvious reasons, because otherwise everybody would sue the government for any policy decisions they make. But when it comes to teachers, employees uh, who are concerned about their safety, you know, to me, this is is somewhat similar to a situation where you have a factory and somebody doesn't want to go in because of a concern, a health concern, or if they get injured, not even because of COVID, but maybe there was an accident. Uh, in most of these kinds of, of, of places of work are covered by workers' compensation. You know, there are mechanisms in place. We do have uh, uh, certain structures in place to compensate individuals who are injured as a result of that. Uh, so I, I don't know how far the unions will get uh, with the government. I suspect that, you know, there there, there is a, a much broader discussion here, not just the health and safety. But, you know, we're dealing with class sizes and everything else that has to do with that. Um, But from a liability standpoint, I I don't think that the unions will be able to do anything vis-à-vis the government from a liability uh, uh, legal standpoint.
0: What would the decision be if it was in the unions favor it just close everything down I mean it just seems there's no answers to these questions therefore there's you know there's there's no way the unions can kind of lose on this they, they uh, whether it, you know the practice goes through or in, in whether it's successful or not uh, not successful what would what would the decision be what would the, how would this result in something better.
5: Well, I think that ultimately we have two major entities here, obviously, the unions. Uh, And and people can have their own views as to what the motives are of the unions. But, you you know, you're positioning this one huge entity uh, versus the government. And ultimately, everyone wants some kind of a resolution. I suspect that they're going to compromise. I'll be very surprised if you have... Some kind of an some kind of an adjudication, some kind of uh, of an arbitration, or, or a legal fight that actually ends up before a decision maker. It could happen, obviously, but my sense is that everyone wants some kind of a compromise, and each each side is positioning uh, to try and get the best bill they can. The unions for their teachers, the government, obviously for the public, because that's who elects them. So you know, if the union if this goes full steam ahead and there is an actual decision. And the government's decision is is it's, and, and the government is found to to not be correct or, or the union wins you know shall we say I think that the repercussions on the government's actions are are fairly significant way beyond the school system it has to do with the healthcare system it has to do with you know uh, um, the the, 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 the uh, um, you know businesses in general you know what can the government legislate and this is why I'm saying that governments generally are immune When it comes to policy decisions, because people understand the legal system understands that if the government is not able to carry through policy, well, then what's the point of government? What can they do?
0: So, uh, in other words, uh, if your child gets sick or what have you, you incur cost as a result of this. the, the, The school system isn't liable for this.
5: Well, that, that's an interesting question. So this is a different thing. We're not talking about unions. We're talking about the safety of, of kids and teachers. And do, you know, can, can they sue? Let's, let's you know, be blunt. Can right. they sue the government? Can they sue the school system, the teachers? Look, I think everybody's trying to do the best they can. I would not be surprised if the provincial government or even the federal government puts forth legislation to, to essentially immunize, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, um, uh, the, the school system, teachers uh from from liability because i think people are anticipating that you are going to have outbreaks you're going to have outbreaks in different locations i think people and you know the 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 health uh uh, professionals out there have pretty much said it's almost unavoidable and they're just weighing you know the cost you know what what are the negative repercussions of not sending kids back versus sending them back so are you going to have lawsuits stemming out of these kinds of instances where kids get Uh, infected or teachers get infected i think you will but i do strongly believe that the government will likely come in with some kind of legislation that provides immunity otherwise it's going to be the wild west i mean for me personally i i don't know that i would take on a case like that because i don't know that i i I could potentially prove negligence against the school and i'm not sure that i even want to, to you know to 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 put forth that kind of a claim because again if you win on that well then you're shutting down the entire system
0: yeah, it seems that the government's hands are tied, and you know, no matter what the union does, they're in a winning position here, uh, and they, they can easily, no matter what happens, sit back and say, "I told you so."
5: A hundred percent, and they're going to do that. We know they're going to do that. Yeah, uh, and and you know, which is why I think the government is in a very difficult position. Which is why, even more so, I think that they're going to try and put in some kind of legislation at some point that provides immunity to to school boards uh, to teachers. Because it's very, very difficult. It's not impossible to prevent these outbreaks when kids go back to school.
0: Can teachers' unions demand fifteen in a classroom? Can they? You know, which many have said, you got to build new schools if you're going to do that. We just right. don't have the room. So, you know, how do you, how does the union stand up and say, well, you know, you got to have more separations? <laughs> well, the alternative there is to build more schools. We, we, you know, you certainly can't do that. Uh, not only is is do we not have time but also the cost is absolutely tremendous so is that an option like they're doing, it seems they're suing but there really isn't an option there isn't really really isn't another choice other than just shut her all down
5: i agree with you which is why i keep coming back to the point which which you've just made which is that the government has to enact a policy you know you have the the other sides of government the different parties who are criticizing that policy and that's fine but at the end of the day you know, no one has a crystal ball. What's going to happen? No, no one knows what's going to happen. There is there are limited funds, limited resources, and unless you shut everything down,
1: you're going to have
5: these outbreaks. It's going to happen. But what is the alternative? I think this is what everybody's fighting over. So I, I agree with you. If the unions win, technically, then the whole system breaks down. The whole system shuts down. That's not to say that what the unions are trying to achieve is yeah. bad. It's not. If we had unlimited resources, of course it would be great to build more schools, get more teachers, but there is a limit, which is where policy comes into play, and the government allocating resources where uh, it thinks that it needs them.
0: Savan, what about homeschooling? What about uh, situations where parents have grouped up with maybe another half a dozen kids, that they're in their their bubble, and then you bring in a tutor or something? What about that liability?
5: You know, Scott, that's, that's a fantastic question. I was actually just talking about that with my wife, in terms of what do we want to do, uh, and You know, the reality is that liability in law attracts when there is negligence. So the question here is if you have, let's say, three, four sets of parents who are getting together, 10 sets of parents, and they're getting a teacher, uh, you know, who's liable? In a way, we can say that everyone is liable because everyone has taken the risk, a voluntary risk. And there is a principle in law that says that if you take that risk voluntarily, then that may either uh, wipe out or diminish your ability to make a claim, right, for compensation. I also think there's an optics issue here. Let's say that, you know, you're one of those parents and you sent your, 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 your child to that pod. Uh, and I'm, I mean, we're assuming here that this is all in person. It's not virtual. Uh, and, and somebody gets infected. Your kid gets infected, let's say. Well, what do you do? Who do you sue? Do you sue the other parents? Do you sue the teachers? Yeah. How do you know who infected who exactly? So I think, I think you will see these kinds of questions come up in the legal context. But I think it's going to be extremely messy. And I think that there's, you know, there's no precedent to this. And and to be honest with you, I don't even know who, which insurance company or what insurer would even respond to a claim like that. Mm. So that's actually yep. one 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 question that I would put to any parents for contemplating this: Have you thought about insurance, uh, perhaps split amongst all the parents, in the event that somebody gets infected and needs treatment, mm. for example?
0: Wow, it only gets more complicated. Uh, Savan Tamarkin has been with us, co-founder and partner of Sanfuro, Tamarkin LLP. Savan, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Man, it's hard to believe September 1st marked uh, 40 years since the end of Terry Fox's Marathon of Hope, his legendary run across Canada. If you're about my age, uh, certainly uh, Terry Fox uh an incredible figure of our generation i remember very vividly watching uh the uh the footage of of Terry making his run i remember driving across canada and seeing his statue uh in thunder bay which is where his uh his uh just outside of thunder bay which is where his run uh, came to an end and his uh his cancer came back and i mean over the years uh, you know we've talked about this so many times had had members of his family on uh, with us as well and And uh, even they, to this day, are are just amazed at how much of an impact uh, Terry Fox has made uh in canada for the for the last 40 years and the contribution that he has made to uh research cancer research in this country let's bring in scott radley sports columnist with the hamilton spectator host of the scott radley show who by the way will have uh bill Weiger on tonight he handled pr for terry fox during the run and was responsible for getting uh the traction that it had he was portrayed by robert duval in the movie and scott will have him on tonight uh scott radley is with us now scott thanks for the time hope you're doing well uh, are, are you surprised that this still has the impact that it does 40 years later, this run, this man?
6: First of all, I I, I was stunned to, it, when it dawned on me that it was 40 years. I mean, how yeah. old are we? I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean, can't yep. Possibly. And I was talking last night on my show, a totally different thing. Yesterday was also 25 years since the day that Paul Bernardo was convicted, which again, doesn't oh seem like it's possible. These anniversaries, all of a sudden, they just start to show yep. off and you go, how old have we become anyway totally different stories those are um yes i am i am surprised in a sense and not that terry fox's story is not the kind of story that should have endless residual lingering effect but we kind of now have a memory and an attention span of about a garden gnat. and you know I, i think for people who were our age or older who were old enough to have experienced that to some degree or another and remember it yes i would say so but I, what's amazing to me is that it still seems to have traction with people who are much younger who may not have even been alive when he was doing his run
0: i remember and this must have been the year later considering it ended in september but i remember being at the cne uh, the year after, I, w- I believe, and they had an exhibition of of him for him, and, and it was sort of a, a pavilion that you would walk through, and it had his, mm-hmm. his voice and and you know film footage of what he was doing, and everyone who walked out the other other end of that thing was in tears. It was it just I remember it having such an impact on me as a young man.
6: You bring that up, and several years ago, I was out west for work and ended up. In Coquitlam, and um, someone had said, Stop at the little library there, the Coquitlam Public Library. And it's a little nondescript building with what might be, in my humble opinion, the worst statue of Cherry Fox ever outside, which is kind mm. of a shame. Um, but inside, it's a, it is a library, but they also have kind of an ad hoc museum for the guy. And the centerpiece of this museum is one of those glass boxes that you would see when you put something valuable inside, and it was one of his legs with the shoe and the sock still on it. Oh my, oh my. And i got to tell you, um, you know, it's it's not him. It's a leg. It's an artificial yeah. leg, and it's an Adidas yeah. shoe, and it's a North Star sock. Mm. And it was really emotional to see it, and you know, you couldn't explain this to people. I don't know that you can explain this to people who are not Canadian. I mean, yeah. I, I suppose they get it, but I, it was it was an emotional thing. To see this. And, and Scott, you know, you know what I really wonder, and we're going to talk about this tonight with Bill Vigor. What I really wonder if he did this today, if he started 40 years later, I'm, I would like to believe that we would have, that it would have the same impact. And, and I, I'm talking, of course, that this is, you know, in the absence of Rick Hansen or Steve Fongel. So nobody had done this kind of thing before. If he did it today, would it really resonate with us? Or have we become so cynical and so politicized that somehow Terry Fox's run would become a political thing. So we'd take sides, he would say something innocuous that would lead to one political view or another. And like, I, I look at this and I go, I'm glad it happened what it did, because I'm not sure that it would work the same way in 2020.
0: The interesting thing too is is you know there was no social media back then, and I right. remember talking to his brother in in years ago in another interview, him saying that the really the, he went halfway across the country before he got any attention whatsoever. It wasn't until he really got into southern Ontario that the media really started to take off and this really started to 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 build. Um, and, and you wonder since then so many of these uh, sort of attempts. You know, I, I think prior to this it was Marilyn Bell swimming Lake Ontario. I mean that mm-hmm. was the, that was the big thing that everybody would do now there's a lot of these various different runs and and so on with terry obviously being the inspiration for those
6: well i I look at rick hansen now i I don't know whether rick hansen would have had the idea to do his man in motion tour without terry fox i've never i I don't remember ever hearing the answer but even if he did um yeah if he had done this without terry fox would rick hansen be the guy that we now look at with much brighter eyes and, and much more regard because i think mean, rick hansen kind of is oh he was the guy who did it after terry fox yeah. and it was a remarkable achievement but you know the, the first guy at a very very much more innocent time boy he he did the right thing and he did it at the right time that it just meant it, it hit the sweet spot and still does do you remember the name of the runner that did it after him Steve Fonio. I went yeah, to there you go. B.C. years ago and tracked down Steve Fonio, who at that point was living in, a tr- in an old truck demolition yard. He was not in good shape. And spent a week with him driving around. And I'll tell you a Steve Fonio's story really quickly. He did finish. Uh, in yeah. went over to Vancouver Island and eventually dipped his toe in the ocean on the other side. And they have a beach for Steve Fonio there. When I took Steve Fonio, he couldn't find his beach. It had been so long since he'd been there, hmm. and he has had a horrendous life yeah. since this whole thing happened. Uh, be, he was the opposite. He was, I right. once described him as, you know, he was the Camilla to Terry Fox's Diana.
2: Hmm. After he
6: came along, you were, you were not seen. He was not seen as a guy who was doing it for great reasons. People saw him as an attention seeker and a wannabe, and yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating yeah. It's, a it's fascinating an interesting story. story. Absolutely.
0: Scott Radley has been with us, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, host of the Scott Radley Show. You're here tonight with uh, his guest, Bill Vigor, who has handled uh, the, who handled the PR for Terry Fox during this run. Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks you too, Scott. Take care.